You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Trinity Church Denver. To find out more about Trinity, visit our website, trinitychurchdenver.org. Trinity Church, uh, my name is Justin Riley. For the amount of time that I've spoken to you this morning, I should have introduced myself sooner. But as you all uh, may or may not know, Brian uh, is on study leave. Nathan prayed for him uh, just a little bit ago in the prayers of the people. He's going to be gone for a few weeks, and uh, I would encourage you to be praying for, for Brian and his family during this season. So uh, this, is a, this is sort of an annual deal um, that we, as a session of elders, send Brian away to be able to go concentrate and, uh, and really plan through our sermon series uh, upcoming. And so uh, if you think of it, uh, please continue praying for him over these next few weeks as he does that. So I am... Uh, delighted to get to preach this morning. Um, Brian was gracious enough to give me the topic of fathers and sons uh, and preaching from this text in Proverbs chapter 6. So let me pray and uh, we'll dig right into it. God, thank you for your kindness and your goodness to us as a loving father and king. God, you've given us your word You've spoken to us, and I pray, God, this morning that we would hear in these practical words of wisdom uh, both encouragement and admonition, God, that we would hear in a direction uh, that, that we should and ought to pursue, that we would hear and see the beauty of what you've given us in, in this wisdom, and God, that we would desire it, God, that we would long for uh, an ability to be obedient, God, that we would long to apply the truth of your word in our lives. God, may we be shaped by you, and may we honor you in all that we say and do. Thanks for this time together. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, I have a few clarifications. So last week, um, Brian preached on uh, mothers and sons. In this, this week, we have fathers and sons. And I, I want to clarify just a couple of things. One, uh, we can and should agree that generalities are generalities. We can and should also understand and agree that uh, when Scripture talks to men as fathers, um, he, by association, by extension, is talking to mothers. When Scripture talks about sons, uh, he is, by extension, talking about daughters. So, is this a fathers and son, or fathers and mothers speaking to sons and daughters? To some extent, yes. Uh, the way that God is structured, and one of the one of the uh, sort of clarifications that I'm going to make as we begin, is the distinction that God has made throughout all of creation between male and female, men and women, and so as He's sort of built this entire construct. We should recognize that uh, when he talks to, when, when, when I read God's word and he speaks to me as a, as a father and as a husband, uh, it matters something to Brady, right? As she is my wife, she is the one also charged with uh, parenting alongside me. Um, and as I, turns out, only have two sons, no daughters, uh, but whatever kids I have, uh, he, he intends to instruct through me and through Brady to these handsome young fellers in the front row. So, 
that's one of the generalities that we need to, we need to uh, sort of get out on the table. There are a couple of others. And one is that uh, if you are prone or tempted to challenge uh, some or most of what I'm going to say or maybe even what I just said to you on the basis of someone that your, uh, your great aunt's hairdresser's niece was once friends with who was an exception to these generalities, recognize that... Uh, these are generalities, and I'd ask you to set those challenges aside for just a little bit for the next, I'm not Brian, so 30-ish minutes, um, and consider the question of Scripture's call to us by way of just a natural interpretation of this Scripture. One of the other things, um, Brian mentioned this, and I think it bears repeating, that uh, we can and should acknowledge that there has been a violent and very intentional aim at the destruction of the family that uh, of a biblical model of the family that God has established. There is a pervasive calling what God has labeled or what God has created as good, calling it evil. And what is evil, uh, many would call good. And so consider what it seems, uh, what seems to be socially pervasive in terms of uh, the distinctions between men and women and the covenant of marriage between one, one man and one woman and the framework of how that union is intended to look from Ephesians 5. Um, and these are just a few of the, of the things that much of our culture hates. I heard a clip just this last week, to, just to illustrate this uh, briefly, I heard a clip this last week of a congressional hearing wherein Senator Hawley uh, was questioning a UC Berkeley, University of California, California Berkeley law school professor named Kiara Bridges. If you heard this clip or watched it, um, man, I'll explain it to you just in brief. But uh, Senator Hawley's questioning this law professor uh, because the law professor had used this this phrase, "people with the capacity of pregnancy," and his Senator Hawley's question was quite simple. He said, "Are are you talking about women?" Seems relatively straightforward, um, and she she continued to sort of rebuff him, and and at one point accused him of being uh, encouraging violence toward transgender people, uh, be, because she went on to explain that uh, from her perspective, people with the capacity of pregnancy could be uh, women, um, could also be trans men or non-binary people. Um, and so there, there is, if you're, so I, I share this with you, it, it, and you can go find this clip. It just, it hit me uh, sort of right between the eyes this week, as this is the full, like, frontal attack on the most fundamental of God's ordinances related to humanity. And, and if you're not aware of it, you, you should be. You need to be aware of what's, uh, what our culture is aiming at and what some um, and maybe particularly centralized in California, are aiming at in the destruction of what God has said is good, which is a man and a woman who love Jesus, uh, coming together in the union, in the covenant of marriage, bearing children, and teaching their children to love and obey Jesus. Now, if you're here and you're single, Again, Brian kind of mentioned this caveat last week, and I'll repeat it again. Though this instruction is aimed at fathers and, by extension, uh, mothers as well, aimed at sons and, by extension, daughters, uh, 
you ought to, to hear in it the kind of life that God has called you to as a single man or, or a single woman. And how then should, you, should it shape your current season of life and your potential future season as well? So fathers and husbands, uh, I'm going to hammer on you a little bit this morning because this is Solomon uh, speaking to his sons. We need to hear it this way. And we, as wives and mothers in this room, you ought to then hear these are the marching orders for your husband um, and, and how you support that, how you uh, partner, how it looks for you as a, as a husband and wife, as a household to teach your son these things. Um, but just as a plain caveat, I'm going to be hammering you guys. Men. So men, your father, er, sorry, whew, fathers, husbands among us, uh, your wife needs vision from you, as do your sons. The role uh, that God's called you to is as the head of your household. This is not, hey, if you feel like it, you should lead your family. This isn't, hey, uh, if, it's, if it suits the two of you to sort of the, whatever the arrangement is that you work out for you to lead on some things and not other things. Know that direction is being set and pointed, whether you're intentional about it or not, whether you're aware of it or not. You are, men, the head of your household. It's not an if. It's a how. You are this. This is your role. Do you do it well? Will you do it well? Will you bear that responsibility with faithfulness before God or not? You should then know the line between delegation and abdication. What does it look like for you to then look at this uh, incredibly beautiful woman that God has gifted you, that you are undeserving of, that he's given you to do life with? Um, What does it look like for you to look at this woman and say, okay, you're clearly better at this. God has called you. He's shaped you. He's suited you for these things that I can't, like, okay, meal planning, I'm terrible at. I'm just going to get super practical for a second and describe to you how uh, this looks for Brady and I. Um, there are things like with the, even with the kiddos that like, she's super creative. Like there are, there are things, there are ornaments, <clears throat> there are um, items that adorn the walls of our home that I think are, are, are really pretty, that make our house lovely. That I, all I had to do when I looked at them <clears throat> was go, <coughs> how am I going to get that level? How am I going to hang that on the wall? You want me to hang what, where? Like how's that, you know, these are the tasks uh, that I take up with great gladness and joy for my wife as she goes about the work of beautifying our home. If it were left to me, our walls would all still be white. There'd probably be a lot more metal around because that's the sort of thing I'm into. Um, and she'd be, it would just not be as is great. So, like, we have to understand as men and as women that there, are, that there are roles that we're called to. There are ways that we're gifted that are distinct. And so, men, your goal, your role is to lead with vision. You have to cast vision for your wife. If you, if you live in a home and all your walls are white and you have nothing hanging on them and you want that to change and you're not any better at it than I am, give your wife vision for it. Give her a budget for it. Say, great, I'd love for you to adorn our home. Make it beautiful. Here's 
however much money to go do that. But she has to have vision. If you have kids, you're, like, you have to lead your family with vision on what it looks like to raise those kids. And be specific. <clears throat> so, there's a couple of things. So, the, 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 this distinction between what it looks like for you to delegate. Look, you're responsible. You're, you as the husband, as the man, uh, as the father are going to stand responsible before Jesus for your family, for your household. Um, but that doesn't mean you have to do all the things. It means what, whatever you uh, give to your wife or task her to do, know what you're doing. Like know what you're asking her to do. Leverage the strengths and abilities that you each have. And know that at the end of the day, the buck stops with you. So that's one side. The other is abdication of your responsibility is, is just saying like, hey, I can't be bothered. This is too hard. I don't know what I'm doing. Whatever the reason is, whatever the excuse is, if you're abdicating your responsibility, um, that, that is not being faithful before God with what he's given you. So there's, th- there's this one ditch that you can veer off to, uh, into, which is failing to fulfill the responsibility and obligation that God set before you, to, to set your hand to the plow in the field before you that God has given you. The other ditch is, <clears throat> on the other side of that road, is being a dictator. It is wielding the scriptures and the, and the role of authority that God has given you like a blunt instrument with the aim of bending the will of each member of your family simply to do what you want them to do or to make your life easier or to fulfill some desire for them to comply to validate you. That is sin as well. Paul writes that we are to love our wives as Christ loved the church and has given his life for her. He goes on in chapter 6 from our New Testament reading this morning to tell fathers not to provoke their children to anger, but rather to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So this is, this is not, uh, bringing your children up in the, in the discipline and instruction of the Lord is not a dictatorial disposition. If, if you are uh, simply waiting for your wife to do all the things to serve you hand and foot and barking at your kids to the point where they, are, they, only, they respond to you, you uh, shout at them in anger and they respond in anger, this is exactly what Ephesians 6 warns about. Don't provoke your children to anger. Dads, if you have an anger problem, your kids are going to have an anger problem. If you can't control your emotions or your temper, what do you think you're producing? There, there are many yous. There are many me's. Yours are many you's. Mine are many me's. They're going to do what you do. This is how God intended it, by the way. This is why this instruction, this is why Solomon writes to his son. He, he, with far more intentionality than I would guess any of us in this room, he wrote it all down. Because your, your children are intended to, to look at you and to desire to be like you, to grow to be like you, to learn to be like you from you. Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. This is responsibility-bearing, patient, sacrificial, and a clear disposition in service to one's family for the glory of God. That was all like groundwork. Let's turn to look at this text and the instructions in it 
And I promise I'm not going to pull a Brian on you and keep you here for another 35 minutes. I shouldn't make promises. <clears throat> I could get on a roll here. Um, I, I'm fond of, of saying from this pulpit <clears throat> to you as individuals in whatever setting and anyone else who's willing to listen, that you have to teach your children everything. You have to teach them everything. So this makes super clear sense when you have a, a little baby and they can't do much on their own at all except like sleep and poop maybe and maybe need help with that. They can't even eat on their own. Like it starts day one and it doesn't necessarily get easier. As your kids get bigger, you have to teach them everything from what it looks like to have, to, to discern who should be their friend, um, how, how to drive a car, how to use the phone, how to look, some, look a grown-up in the eye uh, when they speak to them, how to shake their hands like you mean it. You have to teach them everything. And, and if you think back, your parents had to do this for you as well. <clears throat> your parents taught you, and if you think back, um, how much were your parents intentional about what they taught you? Like how much, and we had a, we had a, Bible, um, a Bible college professor that, that used to talk about uh, caught versus taught. Remember this? Anyway, uh, he would say some things are caught and other things are taught. Some things are intentionally uh, formulated in, in, in what they're taught to you. Other things you just catch because you're observant. You pay attention and you learn. So you are teaching your children one way or another. You're teaching your children whether you intend to teach them, whether you mean to teach them, whether you want to or not. They are learning from you. Thinking back to your parents, what percentage of, uh, of the time do you think your parents were intentional about what was being taught to you? Here's a hint. It was potentially more than you suspected that it was. Was it 70%, 80%, maybe higher or lower? How did that shape, how has that shaped your parenting? So here, thankfully, regardless of how good or poor of a parent, of, of a job your parents may have done, here Solomon and God gives us this instruction very practically by way of Solomon to his sons. And what, what he's sharing with us here in terms of this really practical wisdom is fence building. He's building fences. He's setting boundaries. And boundaries, we should know at this point, are both good and unavoidable. Without boundaries, there's danger, there's ambiguity. And worst of all, there's an ability to run as fast as we possibly can in a direction of one's own selfish desires, which is, in fact, a path that represents and leads to permanent separation from God. It is uh, the pursuit of one's own selfish desires that leads to hell. So one, we have to recognize that these boundaries are good, that these fences are good, and they are a gift from him. So let's take a, take a moment, give thanks, <clears throat> and take a closer look at these boundaries. So these first five verses, verses one through five, are, <clears throat> are really uh, a lesson in, in both economics and in discernment. Let me read these for you. If you have your Bible open still, you can read along with me. 
My son, if you have put up security for your neighbor, have given your pledge for a stranger, if you are snared in the words of your mouth, caught in the words of your mouth, then do this, my son, and save yourself. If you have come into the hand of your neighbor, go, hasten and plead urgently with your neighbor. <clears throat> Give your eyes no sleep and your eyelids no slumber. <clears throat> save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the hand of the fowler. So, this is, you, you could think of this in modern terms as you co-signed for someone on some significant debt they had. So you co-signed on a car for your friend who wasn't as wise with his money or just didn't have as much resources, whatever. Uh, this friend, this neighbor of yours has defaulted on this debt and now they're coming at you. Solomon's sort of thinking ahead as, par- as wise parents do and giving his son some instruction on, hey, if this happens, now one thing we should note is that he's not, uh, he's not full stock saying, hey, you should never put up a pledge or put up money for your neighbor. He, he's not outright saying, don't ever do this. So there's an assumption that, that, this, that his son should be generous, should be willing to make this sort of commitment to his neighbor. And then, thinking ahead, and you could imagine Solomon, the wise, uh, he has to have had gray hair and a long gray beard in my mind. Um, I pictured Jeremy all grayed out in, I don't know, 30 years? All this wisdom, Solomon goes, yeah, this one time, Jackwagon neighbor really hosed me on that one. And instead of like actually sharing that whole story, which he may have done with his son, what he says here is, hey, if this happens, here's what you should do. And like I said, it's, this, is a, this is both an economics lesson and one in interpersonal relationships. So first, be prudent with the resources that God's given you. There's an assumption of generosity and willingness to put up a pledge for someone else. So it's not a directive not to give that pledge. It is a warning to to give your word and make investments wisely. Son, be wise with your money. Don't just lend your money or say that you're going to co-sign for just anyone. In, in, In any amount, know what you're doing and do it with intention. Secondly, the, the lesson in interpersonal relationships here is, imagine something like this. Okay, son, you have a friend who's in trouble. You gave your word and your bond to help them, and then they flaked out. What he's saying is, don't ignore it. If you have kids um, that are maybe, I don't know, 10 or up, maybe 8 or up, maybe this is something you've stumbled upon. If you haven't, Write this down. This is a freebie. Don't, don't let your kids forget. Like, debt doesn't get better over time. It's not fine wine or cheese. It gets much worse. It gets bigger. And people will come asking for their money. People who lend money want their money back, and they want the interest that you said you'd give them. And if you don't give it to them, what do you think they're going to do? Forget about it? Maybe. It's not likely. But it for sure isn't just going to go away on its own. Son, don't stick your head in the sand and pretend that it's just going to go away. It doesn't go away on its own. It doesn't just magically disappear in a few weeks. Eventually, they're going to get what is owed. And it's always better to get ahead of it. And what does he say? He says, go to them. Go to the neighbor. Plead with them. Please, do what you said you would do. And then he says, don't sleep. Like, 
Don't pretend that it's going to go away. Don't stick your head in the sand. Go take care of it. Go and deal with these matters because they won't go away on their own. There, there's, so in this, this economics lesson and this uh, lesson in interpersonal relationships, being wise and discerning about the character of the friends and the neighbors, uh, the people whose company you keep. This second set of uh, instruction, uh, you could group this verses 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10, and 11. Verses 6 to 11. Now, I'm not going to hit this too terribly hard. Brian preached a sermon on this uh, a few weeks ago that was outstanding. Um, the title of his sermon is Go to Bed Tired. Uh, you can find that on our, on our podcast if you missed that or are interested in re-listening to it. So I'm not going to hit this super hard, but listen, he, Solomon's giving his son instruction. He gives him a, an economics lesson, an interpersonal relationships lesson. Hey, here's how to be a discerning with the friends and company that you keep. And then he says, don't be a sluggard. Don't be lazy. Here's what happens when you're lazy. Skip to uh, verse 10. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. There is this, uh, this, it will sneak up on you. Your laziness will find you on your heels and all of a sudden you will be found without anything. You will be found in want. So he says, this is the fence. Okay, this is the boundary. Don't be a sluggard. One who's constantly working just to go play and always, tr- and always trying to figure out how not to have to work. Work, work is a gift. This is what Brian uh, pounded on pretty hard, so I'm not, I won't pound it too hard. Work is a gift. Uh, so the exhortation to his son, Solomon, uh, points him to an ant. One of the very smallest of creatures known to the, to the world at this point in time that they could look at and say, even the ant, even the smallest of creatures works its little abdomen off all the time without having to be told what to do. The, the exhortation is one, teach your men, teach your sons to give a damn. Teach them to care. Teach them to have purpose. Require obedience and then let them ask why. It's not, don't ever let them ask why. (laughs) Should you require obedience of your sons, of your kids? Yes, absolutely. If you ask your, or tell your, your, your son to do something, and his immediate response is, well, why? I don't want to do that. Why do I have to do that? Discipline them. But answer the question. If you, if you tell your son to do something, and he gets up and goes about and starts to do it, and as he's doing it, asks you, why, do I, why are we doing this, Dad? Why do I need to do this? Don't get annoyed and, and just say, because I told you so. If your parenting is marked by I told you so's, you're missing opportunities. What are you you, uh, growing in your son? What will that produce? Even if if you tell him to do it and he just goes, does it, never asks why, and you never explain to him why, think about your son as he grows to be 18 or 25 and he's out on his own. 
He might be a really good doer of everything someone tells him to do. Is that what you want? Do you want him to just do whatever someone tells him to do? Or do you want him to be able to understand the framework of why you asked him to do that thing in the first place? Do you want him to learn and build the skills and abilities to think critically about why you're asking him to do it in the first place? That's exactly what you should want. For him to, to, to have a purpose, to, for him to, to know why, and for him to care why he should do what you are asking him to do. All of those are opportunities. Um, second in this is in the instruction of, uh, of going to the ant, be like the ant, is to take initiative. So similar to the, the distinction between general and special revelation, there is a general versus special instruction. <clears throat> teach your kids, teach your sons especially, to do what they know to do. And if they don't know what to do, to ask questions. But, but to not just sit and wait. Teach them to take initiative. Teach them to, to know what to do and to do it without having to be told. This is what the ant does. Lastly, work hard and go to bed tired. You have a finite number of resources, whether that's financial, whether that's hours in the day, whether that's the physical strength you have in your body. Scripture tells us that uh, the glory of young men is their strength. That resource is a commodity. It is intended to be spent. And it's intended to be spent to honor Jesus for the good of people, for the good of your family, for the protection and provision of your family. Work hard and go to bed tired. I told you I wouldn't pound on it. I pounded a little bit. If you want more, listen to Brian's sermon. Verses uh, 12 to 15. Know what evil looks like. So he describes a worthless person, I'm picking up in verse 12, a worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech, winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, point with his, points with his finger, and with perverted heart devises evil, continually sowing discord. The consequence then, verse 15, therefore calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment he will be broken beyond healing. This is Solomon helping his son understand what evil looks like, what a worthless man looks like. This is the boundary. This is the fence of, hey, don't be this. Don't go here. Don't be a worthless, evil person obsessed with causing discord. So the exhortation is from Solomon to his son and uh, by extension to us, watch your heart and your words. Don't be devious. For selfish gain. Let your yes be yes and your no, no. Don't allow your heart to be perverted, loving evil. Which means, fathers, you must know, you must clearly know what is objectively good and that purity of heart is, is an authentic love for that objective good. You have to know it if you are to teach it to your sons. Uh, the thing aimed against here is sowing discord, which means we are called then to unity. We'll talk more about this in what I would consider or what I've uh, um, wittily claimed or to be this uh, rapid-fire rule book. So we've gone through these, these uh, sort of chunks 
verses, is it 1 to, one to 5, uh, 6 to 11, 12 to 19, or sorry, 12 to 15, there's these lessons that, that you can imagine Solomon sort of wanting to spell out a little bit for his sons. And then he has this catch-all, like, tear of rules in this 16 to 19, where he says, son, the Lord hates these things, doesn't just hate them, he calls them an abomination. It is a hatred with the deepest sort of passion. And oh, by the way, this, you guys are familiar with this sort of this literary device. Not, not only six, there's seven of them. Seven things that the Lord hates that he finds to be an abomination. We're going to fly through these. Um, like I said, I consider these Solomon's rapid fire rule book. Okay, so Solomon's given extended lessons on these other things, and then he says, oh, by the way, write this down. Don't forget these things. The first, haughty eyes. The lens with which you view things being marked exclusively by pride, selfish ambition. And the, the, inver- the converse of this, what then should, this is the thing not to do. Don't, if God hates haughty eyes, what does God love? He loves... Um, his sons who practice and see the world, who, who have a lens of gratitude and humility. The thing, <clears throat> the greatest, uh, uh, what do you call that? When, uh, well, I was going to say vaccine. That has a whole wrong connotation. The, thi- the, the opposite of, if you're protecting against uh, haughty eyes, the thing that you need is gratitude and humility. If you teach your sons to to be grateful for the things that they have, if you teach them uh, to know that God has given everything that they have as gifts, the ability to do anything, to to have the job, to earn the money, to buy the car or the house, all of that is a gift from God all the way down. And that sort of gratitude produces humility. um, and, And those are the eyes that we ought to have and that we ought to teach our sons to have. Number two, a lying tongue. A disregard for what is true and the willingness and ease with which one will deceive for selfish gain. The proverbial uh, used car salesman who will tell you whatever, every question you ask. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, it's got that. Has it ever been in a car accident? No, 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 I don't think so. Not that I'm aware of. The, the, the lying tongue is quick to deceive for selfish gain. The opposite of that, what God is looking for, what God loves then, is the integrity of speaking what is true regardless of the cost. Number three, hands that shed innocent blood. This is, we should see in this, the full rejection of justice based on moral relativity. Rather, God calls us in his word Uh, To use your hands, use your strength to fight for justice as it is biblically defined. It's not just don't shed innocent blood. It's instead of shedding innocent blood, use your hands, use your strength, use whatever means you have to fight, to fight for justice. Number four, a heart that devises wicked plans. This is where you see uh, wickedness saturating all the way into the innermost of one's person. 
and you'll see this a couple of times, but a heart that devises wicked plans. It, it is, in fact, uh, one who has a heart that is relentlessly pursuing its own selfish desires. This is running in the opposite direction of God. It devises plans to bring about what it wants, which is what it wants for its own selfish gain. And rather, God's call to us, Solomon's call to his son here is to have a heart orientation that shapes one's desires around honoring Jesus and then investing one's mental capacity, making plans around uh, those, uh, those desires that honor Jesus. There is in this a call to be wise, to be shrewd, and to be uh, thoughtful about the resources that you have to, in order to deploy them for God's glory. Make good plans. Make God-honoring plans, not wicked ones. Number five, feet that make haste to run to evil. This is a description of an eagerness to run from Jesus. This is the eagerness to reject God or any biblical objective of truth or biblically defined objective truth in favor of the limitless pursuit of self. And we're called to expend ourselves, to expend our energy, our strength, our mental capacity for the good of people and for the glory of God. Your family is the first on that list of people. There should be an eagerness to flee evil, to hate sin, and be quick, uh, to have quick and complete reliance on Jesus as king. Men, we often have a desire for independence. We ha often have um, that sort of uh, idealized notion of the lone wolf on a Harley riding to your ranch in Montana, for example. That's not, that, that's not the field that God's called before you if you have a wife and kids. There's an outside chance that maybe God grants you a motorcycle. Lucky. Be wise with it. But the, the, the whole call in your life is to expend your life, expend your resources, expend your strength, expend the, all of what God has given you for the, for the glory of God and the good of your family first and then the good of all people. Run toward that good. Run away from evil. Number six, a false witness who breathes out lies. So this is not just uh, someone who's willing to be dishonest for selfish gain. This is actually par far more pernicious than that. This is one who lies against another, believing or saying that which is untrue, presumptuous, and assuming the worst. There are sins we know that we can commit against people without having to, to actually affect them. You can sin against your neighbor by believing a lie in your heart about that person. By opening your mouth, you let that lie out into the world. So this is a, a false witness is believing something that's untrue, something that you don't know about that person or that you know and make assumptions about their intent. Don't bear a false witness. Don't breathe out the lie of that false witness. Speak what you know to be true, and most importantly, know when to stop talking. Speak what you know to be true, and know when to stop talking. I'm, I'm approaching that point. 
The last, the seventh, um, God calls these things, not just hates them, but they're an abomination. And this last one is sort of the summary. He says, um, he, he hates, uh, result lies in one, verse 19, the, the last line of verse 19, one who sows discord among brothers. In essence, this is the summary of the previous six characteristics that he's spoken about. And he's speaking primarily about the household of God, as we see by saying, among brothers. There is a special kind of wrongness to sowing discord among the brethren, among the church, the, the body of God. So is our, in, our orientation one of prideful envy, deceit, selfish gain, disregard of others, um, or, or a ferocious pursuit of independence? Versus, what does it look like to lay down your life? What does it look like to lead your family, to serve them, to cast vision, to patiently take the time to instruct? Fathers, we are commanded in Scripture to teach our children, especially our young men. We're, te- we're teaching them many things. Are we teaching them? Are you teaching your sons and your children with intentionality. I will tell you that teaching with intentionality is slower. It requires patience, clarity, and commitment. I'll tell you this from firsthand experience. It's, it's hard. Does it take longer? Yeah. Does the, does the thing that you're building, if it's Ikea furniture or, I don't know, like a sprinkler system, does it turn out as uh, beautiful or as good or as perfect as you might want it to be? Maybe not. But is that, worth the, is that cost worth it for what your sons are going to learn? For what your kids are going to learn? Absolutely. I'm not just telling you this to say, like, I, I, I tell you this out of firsthand experience. And I've not always nailed it. I've gotten irritated with my children. Like twice. And I've sought their forgiveness. But man... What these, what these kids are going to, when they are 25 or when they are 30 or 40 and have kids of their own, and they look back and they know how to use a, pick a tool, and they know how to use it because their dad taught it to them. They've been productive with the things that God's given them because they learned to be productive from their dad. That sounds pretty arrogant. You get what I'm saying. It's the principle of the scripture. We have an entire generation of boys who shave, who have children of their own, and don't know where to begin with fathering because their father wasn't around, or they were around and they were present and absent at the same time. But we must understand this. The establishment of God's kingdom in his people has always been rooted in him as a kind and loving father. And this framework that, that, and construct that he instituted millennia ago that men would become uh, husbands and fathers and be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth with young men and women who will grow to love and honor Jesus. This is the point. This is the boots on the ground of what we taught in Nehemiah this spring of the the sermon series of swords and trowels uh, was to remind men that we are called to fight and to build. And that's exactly what we're talking about in this text. Build a family. And in doing so, demonstrate and teach, inspire, demonstrate to and teach and inspire your sons to grow and do the same thing. This is kingdom building work. Let's pray.